Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Welcome back to the Think Orphan podcast. Thanks again for being a part of the conversation. Brandon Stiver and I, Phil Dark, just love being able to have these conversations and love being able to engage those conversations with you. So uh, we do hope that you are engaging them. We hope that you're sharing them with others. We hope that you're, this isn't just where it ends. We hope you don't just listen and then stop, but you actually listen and actually take these conversations to other people um, into other settings that you are in. So Brandon... How you doing, man? I'm doing good, man. Uh, I like that. I like that intro, man. We'll start off with, you know, compelling our, our audience towards action. I like it. Let's not just be hearers of the word. Let's be doers of it, right? That's right. That's right. That's it's right. Good, man. Yeah. We're so, so what's been up with you, man? I know mean, the last time uh, we we've talked a little bit. We've kind of teased this idea that you're going to the Send Conference, and right. and you did that since I think we, I, I don't think we talked about it. And if we have, you know, man, I'm just I just so excited. I want to talk about it again. So, what? Uh, tell me a little bit. What what uh, what was that like, man? No, it was great. Yeah. So we're recording this very end of May. So it was only a couple weeks ago, uh, but it was great. You know, talk about being doers of the word. You know, that's really that's really. Uh, the the whole impulse you know even behind behind the send and and just kind of that movement and you know it was it was wonderful you know as far as just kind of like getting to hear you know some fantastic speakers you know francis chan christine kane some great worship you know jonathan david and melissa helser carrie job you know it was you know it was cool from that standpoint I, i'll be honest i'm not like a big stadium guy you know i'm mm-hmm. not like let's go to this big thing um but seeing so many people thousands and thousands of people get jazzed up just for for God and for, you know, the, the mission to go and reach people. Um, it was, it was so cool. And, you know, with 1 million home, it was a great opportunity to just, um, to just connect, uh, the piece around vulnerable children, you know, into this send, uh, and, and really, uh, equipping people and, and compelling people into that specific mission field. Right. Um, we need people that as we go out and share the good news are, are doing that both in word and deed. So it was great. We got to engage a lot of new people. You know, when we talk about family-based care, when we talk about the importance of getting kids into family, um, people understand that kind of uh, intuitively to a certain extent, but don't necessarily think through all the nuance and the implications and what it means to provide certain types of services. So, you know, getting to engage people as far as like, well, what's the best type of you know, service that we could do for, for a kid that is separated from family or is at risk. Um, you know, getting to see those light bulbs come on was great, you know, and we got to connect with some people, you know, that are really engaged in this space as well. You know, um, some of the leadership from the Sen, like, uh, Andy Bird and Johnny Gillespie, those are friends and they're adoptive fathers. And so that's awesome. We also got to have, um, Got to connect with Susan Hillis out there, former guest uh, of the podcast and someone that you and I know who's just a titan, you know, in the OVC yep, space. Yep. Um, so she came out and was hanging out with us as well as uh, Sharon Pate, um, who's worked with Lumos and is with mm-hmm. uh, International mm-hmm. Justice Mission. So, I, you know, for me, that was kind of like a highlight, right? I had two highlights. My highlights yeah. was all about conversation, you know, and obviously here on Think Orphan, it's all about conversation. So, uh there was there was a moment where I was just sitting at this small table with Sharon and Susan, and these are just people that I look up to profoundly, right? Decades ahead of me, experience out the you know, yep. out the ears kind of thing, and uh, 
just hearing them talk and go back and forth and just feeling really privileged, you know, to be a part of that conversation with, yeah. with people like, like uh, Sharon Payton, Susan Hills was cool. And then just being down at the table, you know, um, our CEO, Mike, got to share from stage and really just kind of, you know, engage that whole mass. Um, but then for me to just kind of have one-on-one -on -one conversations along with some of our 1 million home staff at the table, um, just seeing light bulbs go on, like, oh, that's, Oh yeah, that does make sense. That would be a better way yeah. to care for yeah. orphans and vulnerable children. Oh yeah, we should be trying to find families for kids or, you know, creating pathways to family for kids. So, um, so it was great, man. I, I just so much love and respect for the organizers and such a privilege to, to play a role, you know, within that. So it was great, dude. Yeah. And shout out to Kansas city, man. We got barbecue. Yeah. And oh, good. 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 Yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad that's the most important thing. Just yeah, to make right. sure you got that barbecue. As we we did have that conversation before, so that I was kind of stressed about that one. So Yeah. Well, I'm glad. you know, I missed on the first time. I missed yes, on the first I time, but the second I time I I went back and okay. I got Oh no, I'm forgetting. What did I get? Brisket, right? Brisket's right. Yes. Yes, brisket. Okay, I got brisket the brisket. Is what you want I got Kansas the brisket. City. I got good. the brisket. You've got the burnt ends. That was bonus points, but you know, if you didn't, but that's okay. Brisket's good enough. So, you know, that that conversation is so cool. I mean, even since we've last talked, I, I was on another podcast. It's called the uh, Backshed Bible Study. It's a good friend of mine. He does he does these little conversations. We had a conversation about, you know, trans, you know transitioning, really, the, the idea of, of orphanages and the idea of some of the negatives of orphanages. And that was a great conversation I was able to have with him. It's amazing how many times these conversations are coming up now to see that you're able to have that conversation at Send to be able to educate people on these issues, you know. And, uh, and that's, that's really what we're talking about today. So it's something we've talked about before on the show. And this conversation we're going to be able to have with a, uh, I, I, can, I don't know if she's still a young woman or a fully fledged, I don't know where that cutoff is, but to me, she's a young woman because I'm getting older and older. Um, but uh, she's just doing some awesome things. So, so tell, tell our uh, listeners who we have today and just a little bit about her. Yeah, we're really excited. A new friend within this space. We got Alicia Pinizzato coming on. Uh, she is the CEO of Story International, uh, operating in Guatemala. Uh, I got to meet Alicia a few months ago. She had reached out, you know, at One Million Home, we engage with a lot of, you know, nonprofits, small to medium sized nonprofits. Some of them are orphanages that want to switch. Some of them are family-based operations that just want community. And uh, she had reached out and had an opportunity to actually connect with her up here in the Pacific Northwest and was just so uh, encouraged and uh, even challenged by just the excellence uh, that her and her team are uh, are really uh, uh, pursuing, uh, you know, pursuit of the orphan excellence, right? They're, they're really pursuing that, uh, that best practice care, you know, for kids. And um, so they're based there in Guatemala, um, just have had such a great time uh, connecting with Alicia in recent months and, and really excited to have her come on the podcast and share a little bit about her story, her family story, and, and also what they're doing at Story International. Let's get to it. Well, Alicia, it is a pleasure to have you on the Think Orphan podcast. How are you doing today? Well, very well. Thanks for having me. Well, it is it is an honor and a blessing. I was just sharing with our listeners a, a little bit about uh, how 
we were able to meet recently and I got to learn a lot about what you and your team have been doing in Guatemala and uh, just such such remarkable work. We would love to hear it directly from you. Can you maybe just uh, introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about you and your background and, and what drew you into working with uh, orphan and vulnerable children? Sure. I mean, it's a big question, right? It's like kind of almost hard to even remember how I started in all of this. But yeah, I mean, my name's Alicia. I um, grew up in, in Atlanta, Georgia, but lived in Guatemala for about a decade um, with my husband. So I did move there when I was 19, the ripe age of 19. Um, I don't know. I joke that like Jesus tricked me into caring for little children and, and families. I mean, honestly, it was not my life's plan for sure. I, I was like planning to study film and live in LA and do cool things and then found myself in a rural Mayan village. Um, I don't know. I, I don't want to over-spiritualize anything, but it really was that simple for me of, of when I first came in, you know, came to understand that there were children living not with their families. I was like, well, this seems like a huge problem, right? Um, and there was a real conviction there for me um, of, of the Lord just saying, yeah, this matters to me. So therefore it should matter to you. Um, and then I, yeah, kind of stumbled my way through figuring out what that looks like over the course of a decade um, living in, in Guatemala. That's kind of the, the summary there. Yeah. And I know that you've actually been a part of a couple you know, different operations there. Maybe even just kind of want to share a little bit about that experience, um, you know, for you personally and what that's looked like organizationally. Yeah. Yeah. It's been so interesting. You know, I mean, so my journey started like in the context of short-term missions, right. That was like my first exposure, um, to needs outside of my like small suburban, you know, town in, in Metro Atlanta and, um, you know, evolved, you know, an internship. And then all of a sudden I found myself living in Guatemala and directly um, coming alongside a local orphanage. So a friend and I kind of co-founded this organization, but really we were supporting something that had, had existed, you know, prior to us being there. Um, just an orphanage that was struggling, right, financially, operationally. And um, yeah, so, you know, about two years into living in Guatemala, I ended up becoming the director of that um, children's home. Um, not necessarily something I had planned to do, nor that I was trained to do. So do not follow in my footsteps, children. I do not recommend this. Um, but, and, and, and met my husband in the process, got married. So, so he and I ended up, um, you know, under, you know, story, our, our organization that I still run today, but working in, in running um, a local Guatemalan orphanage. Um, so I think our, the um, largest amount of kids we had under our care at any time was about 120. Um, we were, you know, when we first started really short staff, really under-resourced, um, and just kind of, you know, on that survival track of like, what does this mean? What does it look like? Um, and, you know, quickly started learning some lessons about, you know, what was working, what was not. And, um, yeah, I mean, it took about four years really for us to wrap our heads around the fact that maybe the whole model itself was not serving children which was our ultimate goal right and it was this super disorienting kind of journey of like we knew our intentions right like we in we were in, you know I felt like I'm a little bit deceived by like my church upbringing because I had kind of been told this is what you do like this is what serving orphans especially outside of the context of the U.S. looks like I had just seen it done so many times and I um you know like so many you know things as you're growing up you don't you don't necessarily question it you do trust um you know, what's been modeled for you. And so, yeah, it was a disorienting, you know, a couple of years there where we were 
you know, diving into some research about, you know, what, what is best for children? What, what does this look like? What are the effects long-term of kids growing up in this context? And then just living it in real time. Honestly, the research was not incredibly compelling to me at first. Um, it was the lived experiences of realizing no matter what we did, I mean, no matter what, and we had some great ideas. I'll tell you what we really did. <laughs> um, you know, we ran like a kick butt youth group and had like all the best food and, and did all the right things and checked all the right boxes. And at the end of the day, we knew deep down, like, this is not the impact we set out to have. This is like, this is survival. This is getting to the end of the day and hoping nobody gets really hurt, but there was ultimately not much healing or growth happening. Um, within our work. And, and that was, that was really devastating for us to come face to face with, um, because it took, it took a lot, of, a lot of humility. I'll just be totally honest. I was completely resistant to it at first. And that was just my pride. I just had a hard time grappling with the fact that I had spent, you know, five, six years of my life what I, doing what I thought was, you know, serving the, you know, children and following, you know, my, my calling in the Lord. And then for me to have to, you know, sit down and be like, well, um, and not that all was lost. I, I'm not trying to paint like a, you know, a lot of wonderful things happened during that time, but ultimately just, yeah, coming to terms with the fact that maybe this is not what these kids need. And I, we have misidentified the problem and now we, we have to do something about that. Right. So anyway, um, we did that for a long time. And then, you know, um, as we started learning, as we started acknowledging the experiences we were having and, and being able to actually say it out loud, name the tension, then we slowly did transition over to what is known, you know, as family-based care, um, looking at how to serve, you know, the whole family, how to keep kids in family, how to work on the front end and the back end, looking at safer care alternatives like foster care. And that was kind of the latter part of my journey in Guatemala was figuring out how do you implement this? How do you make this shift? Because it's such a giant shift, right? Yeah. So you're, you're now at the point where you you're made making made the shift, right? I mean, I'll say making because it's it's transition takes time, and uh, even if you've made it on the ground, sometimes donor transition and all that is a long term process. Boy, let's go back. Let's take a kind of zoom back out and go to Guatemala as a whole. Uh, you know, I I've spent many years working in Honduras, um, but uh, can you just give a general take on what? care looks like in Guatemala as a whole and where you what you're doing now fits into that that bigger that bigger picture yeah yeah it's a good question I mean yeah, Guatemala is really interesting it is um an extremely impoverished country I think it's like 130th out of like you know the 187 countries in the world for worst quality of life um yeah you know 60 percent of the population living under the poverty line you have 50 percent of kids under the age of five um being chronically malnourished you just have all of these factors right it's the uh has the fifth highest homicide rate in the world um so you have you know you have violence you have poverty you have all these things and then you have um, just a real lack of structure when it comes to child protection, right? I mean, the way I would describe it, and it is changing at a terribly slow pace, but I would still describe it as just chaotic, right? It's like, there's all these, you know, people in the mix, um, you know, even, you know, policy-wise, just nothing really makes sense. There's never been a real focused, uniform, what do we do about the fact that kids are getting separated from family every day? Um, and so you got a lot of people doing a lot of random stuff. That's what I would describe like the, the, the landscape of care in Guatemala. It's actually very saturated with international NGOs. It's overwhelming. Um, you know, there's a hundred and I think it's like 132, um, private children's homes, 
um, in Guatemala, which Guatemala is a small country. It's like the size of the state of Tennessee, right? So it's 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 significant, um, and that's probably an underestimation. All of those homes aren't actually um, legally registered, but um, so it's interesting. You just kind of have like. Um, and it's glorified, right? The what I'm talking so the kind of the orphanage model, residential care funded by U.S. dollars. It's generally accepted as you know, kind of the gold standard of of care for children. Um, and, and that's across the board, right? Churches, local churches support that model. Um, you know, people in positions of power support that model. Judges support that model. Um, you know, I would say over the last four years it has been shifting slowly um it's interesting because you hear a lot of talk about kind of things that are happening but in practice actually nothing is really shifting so there was a report that came out in 2019 that said there is you know about 3,800 kids in residential care again that is likely a a serious underestimating but we'll go with the number um the current number is about 39 it, it, the meter is not shifting. Um, we are, it is, it looks very similar, e even though these conversations around working toward deinstitutionalization, you know, really started to pick up some momentum, at least seemingly um, around 2018, 2019. Um, the actual implementation of that has been almost non-existent. So you have a couple of organizations working in foster care. There are only about 66 accredited foster families in the whole country um which is just not a lot right mm -hmm. <laughs> um so, so besides yep. those foster families we're looking at residential care as the primary response to any child being separated from family you know kids are still unnecessarily separated from family right poverty is going to be the leading the driving factor um you know leading um families towards separation um and it's just yeah it's 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 pretty chaotic for sure, you know, and then once kids get into residential care, they are staying there. Um, you know, there is a law, a very specific law that says that it's absolutely illegal, right? Um, but in practice, that is that is just what happens. There is very little, um, you know, focus or knowledge around reunification or what that looks like. Um, you know, nine out of 10 kids living in residential care in Guatemala have a living parent, right? And that, that's kind of true across most contexts, um, but in Guatemala it is, yeah, nine, nine out of 10. So with that, you talk about that, and this is something, I mean, it's not, you could have just substituted Honduras for Guatemala, and it's very, very similar um, with regards to the, I think the, the numbers are very similar, the foster care issues, the government saying we want to do this, and then, you know, not putting really anything behind it, all those are, are issues. So in the midst of that, you come in and, you, and, and as an organization, and I know Identity uh, Mission is doing similar things in Honduras. You may know Tara over there. She's great. Um, and, and, and yet it seems like such a massive uphill battle, right? So what do you do in the midst of that? Because we're fighting for foster care. We're going to talk more about foster care later, but we're fighting for foster care. We're fighting for reunification with family. We're fighting for all these things. <clears throat> Excuse me. And yet the government doesn't put muscle behind it, really. And there aren't the families. So let's say, hypothetically, the government said, yes, let's go. There aren't families to be able to bring in those kids for the foster. So how do you, first of all, how do you, what, what's your goal and not goal what's your uh, plan in the midst of that first of all it's strategy to to make that happen and then secondly how do you personally continue to be uh encouraged in the midst of that i mean it sounds cheesy but i think my answer to kind of both this question you just asked is the same it's like 
like kind of like just focus on one child like prove your model no matter how small it is this is what story is I think done well it's like it, it took about two years from the time that we signed a contract with the government to implement foster care to the time that we had our first foster family. I personally was quite frustrated. Our team was like, it's worth it. If one kid can stay out of an orphanage and stay in a family contact, like, let's do it. Let's keep going. Um, and we really had to shift away from like focusing on like, we have to, you know, we have to get all, you know, 4,000 kids out of orphanages tomorrow to like, okay, what's in front of us? What's going to happen to the next kid coming into the system? And can we, can we affect that positively? Um, I think has been my team's perspective and I've learned a lot from them and, and kind of taken on that perspective, right? Of like, yeah, big government change. We need to work on that. We need to talk about it, but like also like each individual child right? Like that, that matters, right? So like we have a handful of foster families in way, way to Nongo where we work. Like we're not, you know, shifting the whole, you know, context of care for children in Guatemala yet, right? Um, but I do think we've done a great job of proving the model on a very small scale. And it's interesting how that has a ripple effect, right? So when we first started working in foster care, we had, we got a couple families approved and nobody would place a child with their families, right? This is probably true in a lot of Central America, judges hold all the power, right? And because the model hasn't really been proven, the judge in our context was like, yeah, no, like that sounds risky. There's a children's home down the road. So why would I trust you crazy people, right? Um, and it was, um, you know, obviously frustrating, but we continue to, you know, invite the judge to workshops and trainings and, you know, build relationship and do the work. Um, and, and then we had our first successful placement, right? Um, you know, we were able to uh, place a 13-year-old girl with one of our foster families and then successfully reunify with her, her with biological family in about six months. And that was what it took, right? And again, I'm, I'm, this is like two and a half years, almost three years into our journey where the judge, you know, in a hearing was able to say, okay, I'm going to send all my kids to your families, right? Um, so I think it's that. I think it's, you know, having the the big zoomed out you know picture of like of the need and what needs to happen but also not being so overwhelmed by it that you can't help you know the next child right the one child so we've talked about that a lot on this show and i'm just in conversations i've had over the years the idea that this is a legacy vision it's not a it's not a sprint that we're going to solve the problems in the next year and we're just going to all be celebrating next year that there's no orphans ever anywhere all over the world. And we're all in foster care perfectly executed because we know in the United States that's, you know, not going to happen overnight. And, may you know, it, it's never going to be perfect. The problem with all these things and all these solutions is humans are involved, right? So um, that's the reality. Yet... We have, you know, we serve God and nevertheless, right? We're not perfect, yet God will work in that to say, hey, we're going to make some, some changes and there will be kids that their lives will be transformed and then we will be able to start changing and transforming society one kid at a time. And yeah, that, it, it, it's, a, it's cliche because, it, but cliches have truth to them, right? So that is, that's absolutely true. So let, let's, again, take, take a, a look back in the past too to see, if there's one place in the world where uh, the orphanages would be under scrutiny, I think it would be Guatemala because of what happened a couple of years ago. And, and, I, and I know I've heard you tell the story elsewhere about that uh, tragedy that happened at the Guatemalan orphanage. And for some people may not be aware of what I'm talking about. So can you just quickly 
um, recount that, what happened there, and give you know a little bit of background in it too that I, I actually didn't know before I heard you tell the story of some of the abuse that was going on before. And what has happened since then? How has the government responded to that? And how has that played into what you're doing and able to do because of it? Yeah, yeah. So it's obviously a very important story. It, it, difficult to talk about, but important nonetheless. So 2018 um, in Guatemala City, there, there was a, you know, a, a tragic incident. So there was a children's a government-run children's home housing a little under a thousand kids um, at a time. Um, and, you know, leading up to, to what I'm going to describe what happened, but leading up to this incident, um, I mean, there have been repeated, repeated, repeated reports of abuse, neglect, trafficking. There had been several deaths in the home um, due to negligence, due to violence, suicides. Um, I mean, pretty unthinkable things for a, a place protected to a place committed to child protection. Right. So it was you know, there were people aware that the situation was out of control, but it's really interesting because it feels like maybe no one really quite knew how to stop it, right? It was like a train running off the tracks and um, it did go off the tracks. So March 8th, 2018, um, it was International Women's Day. So there was a group of um, teenage girls who had been protesting the night before um, about the abuse, about some of the things they were experiencing. They planned an escape. Um, some of them did escape. They brought in like the full force of the police and I think there was like the army, the national, there was a lot of um, people in uniforms on site that day. Um, there's videos, you can YouTube it. It's pretty, um, it's hard to watch. But um, anyway, as part of punishment, you know, 53 of those girls were put into a six by six meter room for the night to sleep, given a couple mattresses, kind of just told to be quiet. This was their punishment. They were under lock and key. There's a couple of police officers guarding the door. Um, they weren't letting them out to use the restroom they told them they should use the restroom, you know, feed themselves. Right. Um, and, um, one of the girls thought to lit a mattress. This is the story. At least there are some survivors who have been able to, to attest to this, right. Thinking that certainly if there was fire in the room, the door would be open. Unfortunately, the door was not opened at least for about 10 minutes. And by that time the room was engulfed in flames. Um, and yeah, 41 girls lost, lost their lives. So, um, about 19 of them died on the spot, were burned to death. The rest of them died in hospitals. Some of them were transported to burn centers in the States. Um, there are some survivors um, that are, you know, severely misfigured um, and, you know, can tell this story for themselves. But, you know, it was kind of the ultimate, like, I mean, it's unthinkable, right? Like, it almost feels like I'm making it up as I'm saying this. Like, how, how could this happen? <laughs> like, like these are kids who have endured trauma their entire life. They, the, the home was called safe house, right? Like, it's, it's unthinkable, right? Um, that just in general, the type of care they were receiving, that something like this could happen, you know, under the government's watch, the government run home, a government funded home. Um, but it was just completely out of control. Right. And, and obviously it shook the whole country. Um, I remember, you know, the day that it happened. Um, I could, I, you know, I could tell you word for word the conversations I was having on the phone. I felt like, you know, time was happening in slow motion that my husband and I were, were still running the orphanage we used to run at the time and actually ended up taking in about 15 teenage girls from that home who had witnessed some of these events. And I will never forget those conversations. I mean, some of them had lost sisters. Some of them had lost, um, you know, their best friend or their cousin. Um, and, and then I personally also knew one of the girls who, who had passed away. And yeah, it was just this absolutely surreal, um, tragic, tragic moment. And 
um, you know, I always say it's like a literal smoke signal, right? Like, hey, like kids are like kids are not okay, right? Like who's paying attention to this? Um, and you know, it's interesting because so the fire happened was March 8th, 2018. There was a lot of attention on child protection in Guatemala after that. A lot of talk. You had a lot of international players coming in, um, looking at what happened, you know, investigating. By the way, nobody has been sentenced um, for this incident. Nobody. Um, There's a couple people on house arrest. So um, anyway, no justice and honestly, no true reform. So there have been, you know, there has been increased conversation um, about what it looks like to move toward deinstitutionalization. There is more openness from the government. You know, we um, relatively soon after all this happened, went to our, you know, government partners and said, hey, we want to do foster care. There was a wide open door for us to do that. I think that probably has likely to do with, you know, everybody was acutely aware of, okay, we need to try something different. Um, so there was that. But like I said, in, in terms of true, true, true reform, if you just want to look at the numbers and kind of silence all the talk about what you know, in theory is happening, um, not much is shifting. So we have a, you know, a, a person pretty high up in government on our board of directors in Guatemala. And we just recently had a meeting where she was like, you know, she was having a hard time talking about it. She's like, it's it, the same thing is happening is what she told us. She said, the same thing is happening. Our government homes are completely full. Like nothing has shifted. We have, you know, she's in charge of some of these homes and, and saying like, it's the same thing. We have hundreds and hundreds of kids living in um, living in facilities and there's not an option for them. Um, it is interesting because, you know, what she mentioned specifically is like, you know, we were going through this strategic planning and she's like, you know, the teenagers, like, what are we going to do with the teenagers? This was like her primary thing. Cause she's like, you know, it is, there are a few foster families, but the, you know, the ones that we do have in Guatemala are open to taking in small children. Right. So there's actually of the 60 something foster families in Guatemala, um, you know, not all of them are currently caring for kids in their home. And it's because they are, you know, open to taking, you know, infants, babies, but she's like, yeah, that's, you know, that's what she was telling us. We have these, it's the same thing. We have these government run facilities and we have 300, you know, adolescents living there. And what, what do we do about it? So, um, yeah, like I said, you know, for me, it's like, you can look at the research all day long, but then something like that happens. And it's like, this has to be urgent. Right. It's not just that like, okay, we might have some attachment issues down the line. It's like, not that that's not significant. That's really significant, but like also kids are actually suffering. Right. Yeah. No. And I think anytime we're talking about violence, which has been one of the things that we've talked about this year, you know, that's, that's the most, and I remember when that story came out in 2018, I mean, it was uh, devastating, you know, for, for, for me who has, essentially no real connection to Central America or anything like that, you know, but just hearing those stories was, yeah, it was devastating. And to think that it was preventable, you know what I mean? Like that's not, not only like preventable, like not, and I'm not just saying like they could have just opened the door. Of course they could have opened the door, but them being there, (laughs) you know, was preventable, right. Or, or the issues that were happening you know, problems with the staff or behavioral issues, even with the kid, like all of it, all of it, you know, could have been prevented. And, um, you know, one of the things that I always try to emphasize to people is don't just look at the interventions, you know, go upstream, you know, see what you can do to prevent it. Um, and that's just such a tragic, tragic story of, yeah, like you said, the train going off the rails, 
you know, and I want to kind of build on something that, you know, you started to allude there, Alicia, um, in kind of ways that Story International has been able to kind of build even out of that really tragic situation or just kind of your guys' other learned, you know, uh, lessons learned um, over time, which is around this piece with foster care. Now, when we talk about foster care, in fact, I was on a call with one of our partners today. She's in Lesotho. And, um, you know, we talked about foster care and she's the, the government is really has almost no interest, you know, in foster care. And, you know, when I was in Tanzania, I thought that we were just going to, hey, look, at there's policy here for foster care. We're just going to roll this thing out. And uh, it was easier said than done, right? Um, now, what you guys, and you've already alluded to this a little bit, and there was some lead time there that felt more like lag time than lead time, I guess. Um, but your team has actually developed, you know, a foster care, you know, team agency with foster parents, with kids placed. Um, and in a lot of countries, you know, that's not, that's not a viable option, or at least they're in that development stage. Can you share about your team's experience in that space and, you know, what progress has been made? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, it seemed overwhelming at first because, again, like you said, there was really no framework for it. So it's like there was actually legal framework for it, which I know is not the case in a lot of other countries. You know, when we went to the Guatemalan government, they're like, yeah, technically, <laughs> legally, you can do this. But like it, in terms of actually what it looks like to roll it out, there was really little, very little to go off. There were there you know, was some stuff there, but especially in a rural area, like we were the first people in Guatemala that, that we know of to go into a rural area and say, we're going to recruit foster families. I'll never forget the person that I talked to right that day. She was like, yeah, in way, way, she kind of laughed at me. Right. Which was like motivation for me. She's like, you will never, you will never find foster families in the mountains of Guatemala. I'm like, all right, well, might as well try. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, our team, that process, you know, it was, it was just hard. It just was a lot of hard work. I mean, we were committed to you know, building out something excellent, right? You see a lot of the ways in the states where foster care can, similar to residential care, really go awry, right? And so we were really committed to, okay, what does it look like to vet the best families in our region? What does it look like to train them with the best resources available? Um, what does it look like to like really solidify these church partnerships so that there's support for the families? Um, I mean, all of those pieces. So we really looked at, we just tried to do our homework. Like we looked to a lot of people who are doing it well. So like we um, learned a lot from um, some friends in Costa Rica with an organization called Casa Viva. We also did some consulting with some um, foster care agencies in the States. And we're just kind of trying to take all these pieces, you know, where foster care has been done and, and implemented and it has been successful. But then really the hard part was contextualizing it, right? It's like we had all these pieces and then it was like, okay, this isn't Costa Rica and this isn't the States, right? This is Guatemala. And not only that, but this is rural Guatemala. So that was a lot of the, the work that our team had to do was like, how do we contextualize this? How do we boil it down for our target audience and our, in these churches? How do we, um, yeah. How do we, you know, you know, get, you know, turn the engine on here. It's like, we feel like we kind of like built the car, but then we had to like, I don't know. Um, so yeah, I mean, the developing process was, honestly, I thought it was really fun. It was like putting a puzzle together, but it was also pretty painstaking, um, you know, just in, in terms of, you know, we built out our own training curriculum, things like that, that like um, really just took a lot of time, right? It's not something that the government handed it handed to us. Uh, it was something that, you know, we decided we were going to build out. And, um, you know, our team was really involved in the whole process, which I think is part of why we've been successful in that. It's like they were... 
um, you know, they were the investigators. They were the people putting these resources together. They know all of this, you know, forwards and backwards. So when they go and they're talking to a prospective foster family, it's like this stuff is just in them, right? They built it. <laughs> um, and, but then, yeah, you know, the implementation, even though once we felt like we had kind of the green light of like, all right, we have a program, right? We, we've built it out. We think this could work. And then it was like, yeah, how do we find the first family? And, you know, we just ran into a lot of cultural barriers, um, which I think is, you know, going to be common across, you know, a lot of contexts where foster care is relatively new, where we were, you know, we were thinking we had like this awesome, you know, we'd go into a church, give this awesome sermon about caring for, you know, orphans and, and widows, and that we would have like a line of people at our table after signing up to be foster parents. Obviously not the case, right? There was a lot of like, wait, what? And the orphanages are working fine. What do you mean? Like we bring a pinata there once a month, right? Um, like we're doing our part. We already checked that off. Um, so we just had to really get into the nitty gritty with some of, with community education. Honestly, it's like before we ever could even start thinking about licensing a family, it was just community education. That's what those two years were. It was like, building church partnerships, like meeting with the same pastor nine times. Um, literally like we are, we're about to license a um, couple and they are the lead pastors at a fairly um, significant uh, church in the area. And we have probably done 12 trainings at their churches. I gave up on them training three. I really did. Um, I'm just being totally honest. And my team was like, no, like we got to just keep doing it. I'm like, they don't get it. They don't even know what we're saying. Um, and they're like, it just takes time. And so our, you know, my, one of our directors in Guatemala, when they started their licensing process, she called me and she's like, you'll never believe who's going to get licensed. I'm like, there's no way, there's no way it's that pastor couple. Um, you know, but it was just that it was being patient with, okay, we are shifting an entire cultural paradigm. Um, and that's work, right? It's like yeah. there's, there was the two processes of like actually building out the program and then actually getting some buy-in from the community. And then the actual work of, of doing it, of licensing our families, of supporting them, of placing kids in care of, you know, we, we do, re we work on reunification as well. Um, so we're just actually getting into that portion of it. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's huge, though. I mean, and, and just having those services developed and then available is going to create, you know, entirely new paradigms, you know, in a context like, like, oh, boy, if I can say it right, you're going to give me a virtual high five. Weiwei Tanago. Did I say it right? Oh, all right. All right. Tanango. Okay. You know, in a rural area in Guatemala, you know, to be able to develop like something like that is just remarkable and you know as you were even sharing Alicia you know I just had airs of you know the work that we were doing in Tanzania where it was you know it's just a grind it's just a grind to just get the word out and to kind of you know on the government front on the church front on the community front on the family front like it, it's big you know and and it's big here too right when we talk about foster care um, and, you know, to kind of go forward in your story and your husband's story a little bit, you know, a couple of years ago, you guys came back to living in the States. You guys are living in Georgia again um, after several years in Guatemala, you know, and, and even recently, you guys have become foster parents here in the States. So you actually have this kind of cool opportunity to juxtapose, you know, what it looks like to kind of pilot a foster care system in a context where it wasn't there. Or, and, you know, and then to actually be a foster carer, um, you know, here in the States. Can you uh, compare and contrast those a little bit, those two vastly different contexts, you know, for foster care? And, and um, you know, what are some of the striking 
similarities? What are some of the striking differences? I mean, what is that? I mean, we're, we're placing at-risk children, kids that have become separated from their biological family into alternative family. Uh, what are some of the similarities? What are some of the differences? Oh man, it's so interesting. It is so, so, so interesting. I think the, so I'll start with the primary differences. So yes, this is the first time we've ever fostered in our home where I am, you know, immediately responsible for this one child. Um, and so, so here's the thing. So in Guatemala, like when we're talking about foster care and building out this new this new alternative for kids that I, that I truly believe is the safer, it's the best thing we've come up with, right? In, in terms of what, what needs to happen when a kid is separated from family. Um, but there's a lot of hope around it, right? Because it's a step forward. And I think the things that's been really almost pretty, dis, you know, actually just really disorienting in now fostering in my own home is just like, you know, everybody who works in and around this foster care system is so jaded, is so jaded to the whole thing my own, you know, you know, caseworkers. Um, and I'm not like blaming them. It's, it, it's just so interesting. Cause you can kind of, you can see like the hope that it represents. And then you can, I'm living what it looks like when it's not done really well. Right. And so it's something I'm talking to my team a lot about. I'm like, we have to just tread. So like, that's not the right phrase. Like we just have to continue to commit ourselves to excellence right? Like, I really don't care how slow we grow. <laughs> I, I just really don't, right? I'm like, we have to build this thing slow and well, because when I'm looking at what's happening here, I'm like, this is insane. My, my um, you know, defects, or I don't know what's called in other states, you know, um, caseworker has 35 kids in her caseload, right? Um, and so I can't blame her that like, maybe I, you know, I feel like we're not as connected. She's not as involved in, 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 my, you know, my foster child's life as she should be. I really can't blame her. Um, and I think this is my, I don't really know what number of caseworker this is for the child that I have in my care. I know it has been many, many, right. Just the general, like, you know, turnover rate, things like that. So that's been the, the strangest thing for me to kind of grapple with is like, we have this solution that is so hopeful over here. And then I'm seeing how it can, quickly turn, <laughs> um, and become something that's incredibly frustrating, you know, similar to residential care. Right? It's like, I think we have to just be careful here where it's like, we don't hold like, all right, if we could just implement foster care across the globe, we have solved the problem, right? Like it, it is not a fix all it's a step forward. Right. But like, it needs to be married to family preservation. It needs to be married to reunification. It needs to be married to these like wraparound services to you know vulnerable families and children in general because this is a standalone solution a standalone solution like it just it, it's it's hard right I mean it's like what Phil said it's like we're not looking for perfection here obviously we're working with humans and the thing that's broken initially is the family right so no solution put in place is going to be like oh well we did it we fixed it right um so that's been an interesting tension for me of like just you know for so long being like if we could just implement foster care in Guatemala, it would shift so much. And that's true. Like that is still true. But then seeing it from the other side and being like, huh, um, this still isn't the end goal. Right. right. Like I, you know, there has to be a plan for permanency for children, even beyond foster care. Like the child that we have in our care, she has a court case coming up on the seventh and nobody can tell me what's going to happen. Right. She's been in and out of foster care twice. Um, and this current stay has been about 
three to four years in care, just floating around. Right. Um, so I'm just seeing like how as a stand, like I said, as a standalone solution, um, it's not, it's not quite enough, even though it is crucial that, that it is implemented as an alternative in, in the developing world. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think it's, it's, it's a piece to the puzzle, you know, um, and, but it's also a piece of the puzzle that takes a lot of work, not only to develop something like what you did in Guatemala, but also to maintain it. There are a lot of moving pieces when we talk about a kid that enters any type of care setting, even the best of foster family agencies within the best of foster parents. You know, it's there's still going to be a lot of work, you know, involved. And, um, you know, when I think about, you know, my own experience working in foster care, um, and it was like a well-oiled machine, and yet it still just took so much. And we were recruiting, you know, and, and training some of the best foster parents I've ever met. But it, it just, it, it's, it is a significant thing. And it really means, you know, it's, it's one piece within a larger child welfare, child protection system, right? Um, and we can't, you know, we, we have to decide what is our one or two pieces that we can... Uh, develop and kind of contribute to the broader system, but it's way too much for any one person, one organization, one role to really kind of, you know, address. So um, really fascinating. And, you know, as you guys were going into, you know, becoming foster parents, um, you actually, you know, I remember, again, going back, you know, we would we would specifically be looking for people to take sibling sets, older kids or kids with disability. Right. Those were kind of the kids, you know, similar to what you were saying as far as when you were engaging people interested in foster care in Guatemala, they were looking at, well, can we get little kids? Right. Can we get cute little kids? You know, kind of thing. Um, but the older kids were often um, overlooked, not desired. Um, and for you guys, you know, having taken your, you know, initial placement, you guys jumped right in with an older kid. Um, what, what kind of led you, you know, uh, you and your husband, uh, to, uh, to welcoming in a kid that maybe was being overlooked or passed up because they were, because they were older or because of a trauma background or what have you. Yeah. Yeah. So we are, um, currently fostering a teenager and that, you know, that was our placement profile from the beginning. Um, I mean, there's, you know, just as we thought about doing this, like, this isn't like, this is just an uncomfortable thing in general, right? Like if we were, um, you know, looking to be, I don't know, like when we looked at foster care, we're like, all right, this is something that we are willing to, like, as a family, we're willing to sacrifice for, we're willing to make space for, this is, we feel, we feel called to this, we feel convicted to this. Um, and so with that, there was just not a lot of reservations of like, I don't know, like, you know, what would a more difficult, whatever that means, like I'm doing air quotes, right? Like difficult case, look. like the reality is like children suffering from family, we're dealing with trauma. Like that's the bottom line, right? Like that's difficult. There's stuff to work through there. And like, as a family, we had already committed to that in our hearts and minds, right? Like we were willing to walk with the child through difficult, through difficulties, right? And so for us, like age just seemed like almost like a, a random thing to um, like discriminate discriminate against right it's like all children need family 
right? It's not that a four-year-old needs a mom more than a 14-year-old. In fact, you know, and then a more personal piece for me here too is like, I just remember being a teenager. Like I'm not that old, right? Like I remember being a teenager and man, those are some hard years, right? Like no matter what family background you're coming from, like being 15 is just kind of like it's incredibly hard, right? You have so much going on in your internal world. So I could only imagine, right? All of that normal teenager stuff going on and then working through the trauma of family separation. Um, I just can't imagine, you know, like, I don't know, for me, I just make it personal. I'm like, all right, what would I have needed if I had to be separated for some reason from my family? And I was 14, 15, 16, 17. Right. Um, and, and that just kind of made our path a little bit, you know, a little even more obvious of, um, all right, teens, right? And, and, and we just know from working in this space, that's that's where the need is, right? Um, teens are intimidating to people. And so people are generally more hesitant to consider bringing a teen into their home, um, which, you know, it's, it's interesting because I, I, I think I view it a little differently. I'm like, uh, you know, I had a conversation with somebody recently who was talking about um, asking me about foster care, they're considering fostering. And they said, you know, well, we would definitely do a younger child, um, you know, and then they asked me a question and I, you know, I did not judge, uh, but the question was, do you think, you know, a younger child would have less problems <laughs> talking about my current foster placement? Um, so I had to think, right, of how to respond to the question. Um, and, and truly that's the perspective people have, right? They're like, oh, a younger child has, you know, less problems, whatever that means. And, you know, what I tried to explain is that, I mean, that's really not true. First of all, it does look different, but like, again, trauma doesn't discriminate, right? Like, um, trauma affects a three-year-old and it affects a teenager. And that's going to come out either, you know, in, in, in different behaviors, right? Children are going to be expressing their needs through behaviors at all ages. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I think just, you know, I've had enough of those conversations with people to know that, Hey, this is the group that's getting pushed to the side. This is the group that's getting labeled. Um, and, but this is also like the next generation of kids. I mean, they're about to become adults. Like let's parent them while we can. Right. That's like kind of my perspective. I'm like, Oh, you have five more years left to be parented. Like let's make sure you're parented. Right. Yeah. No, that's really good. And, and, you know, if we were to pick your brain, I have one brief follow-up. Let's imagine that there's hundreds and hundreds of people listening to this podcast, and there's a few that have heard, oh, yeah, we hear the needs that teenagers need foster carers. Uh, as somebody that is on that road and now has a placement as well, what would be one piece of advice you know, to help somebody that's preparing to bring in a kid uh, that's, that's a little bit older, right? Um, that, that's a teenager that's maybe bounced around a little bit or, you know, kind of fill in the blank. Each kid is unique, but somebody that's specifically maybe looking to bring in a kid that's older, um, what advice would you give them? First of all, brush up on your pop culture. <laughs> we took a stager and she's like, you don't know any cool music. I'm like, you're right. Please show me. I have no idea. Right. Um, no, but really, I mean, it's, it's just connection, 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 connection. Like, how are you going to connect with the team? That's how you prepare your heart. How are you going to connect with them? Like, that is the one thing that every human's heart longs for and that that child has been separated from family longs for. Right. And it's, um, teens just feel isolated, right? They, they do. Um, and so when, when, families out of the picture, it's obviously extremely pronounced, just this need to belong, right? So either they're going to connect to you or they're going to connect to your peers, to their peers, right? There's like, there's two roads. Um, so just connection, right? For me, it's like just getting really creative, <laughs> really creative, right? Like, 
you know, let's have a girls night. Let's do, um, you know, we do, I do a thing in my house. I have a top secret notebook that I keep with my teenager. Um, so it's like a thing where if she, um, doesn't feel ready to talk about something, she can write it down in this notebook and stick it under my mattress. And I won't bring it up in conversation with her unless it's a safety issue. I will just respond back. It's a safe mode of communication for her. Um, just connection, 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 right? Like, you know, physical connection. I asked to braid her hair like once a day. Right. Um, because it's, you know, maybe she's not comfortable coming up and cuddling on the couch, but it's a physical, physical connection point for us. And this child has only been our care for a couple of months. And I will tell you, we have connected and all of a sudden, all those behaviors that need correcting in the long term seem less overwhelming to me because I'm like, okay, we can, you know, we can work with connection. Um, so yeah. So good, Alicia. So good. That is, that is. And, you know, I mean, I think, just having now four teenagers in my house, uh, actually three, three, one, one aged out of teenage years, um, in my home. And I mean, that's, that's universally true with teenagers in general. And, uh, so I think too, that that's, that's a good lesson for us too, that don't overthink it sometimes, you know, like just connect with them. And that, that's, what does that look like? Well, it looks different for every kid, whether they're a foster kid, biological kid, kid that's been through trauma, kid who hasn't, like that's, that's one of the things that's consistent, right? And then there's a whole lot more beyond that that we don't have time to get into today. But uh, I, I, just, I just love hearing all that. And, uh, you know, we could, we could go on and on as we you typically could with all of our guests, you know, we could, we could have hours and hours of conversations, but, uh, you know, I think most people would probably tune out by then. We, we are not Joe Rogan yet. Um, although Brandon's looking more and more like the guy, I don't know. So, um, I'm just, just saying. So, um, but, uh, anyway, we, we do want to wrap it up, but I, I just want folks like the stuff that was talked about today is so important. And so go back, check it out, listen, listen deeper. If you were working out or something, you missed some stuff, go back and listen. But, but as we close up with, uh, with the questions we, we always ask, I uh, love to love to hear these things from you. So what, what have you read, watched or listened to that has impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children with excellence? Yeah. So it's interesting. The most impactful thing for me has been anything around parenting. So like, obviously I've read a lot, you know, a lot of TBRI, Karen Purvis, The Connected Child, and then just in general parents, like I have this book right here. I'm reading this book called Hang On, Hold On To Your Kids. It's got like a very nineties cover, but every time I read a parenting book, um, I think about what that looks like for orphan and mobile children. Right. So I'm like, they need parents, they need attachment, they need connection. Um, how can they get that? Right. And that's like, I think that's been the most impactful thing for me is like, how do I want to parent the kids in my own home? And what does it look like to implement policy and, and practices and programs for kids, you know, separated from family or vulnerable children that mirror that at least pretty closely. Right. Yeah. Um, so just, yeah, parenting books and then TBRI is my go-to, right. Anytime I'm like wondering, like, yeah, how do we meet the best, best meet the need, best meet the needs of, you know, orphan and vulnerable children. I'm um, just looking at some of those, you know, trauma-informed um, resources. Yeah. Yeah. And you reminded me actually something you said like five minutes ago, 10 minutes ago, just there where you said like brush up on pop culture it reminded me when I was teaching a class and I'm, I'm much older than you. Um, you're almost, you know, nearly half my age, which is just crazy, but I'm, it's cause I'm getting older and older and older. But, uh, I, 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 they, they quizzed me on pop culture and they gave me five sayings from their, you know, that were quote unquote hip in the college uh, days. 
and I went 0 for 5 on it. So that's just, you know, just uh, something. I have kids, and they didn't, you know, they, that I came home, and I'm like, hey, do you guys know these things? They're like, yeah, Dad, where, where have you been? Um, but anyway, I used them wrong, and that's, that's what dads do. So anyway, but that's, that's kind of the fun of it, too, is to be able to do some of that stuff. But, but I love that. Just I think what, what you're saying there and what we can learn, is, which is why we ask this question, is to always be learning, continually be learning, and we can never be done learning. So that, love that, love that. All right, so what person uh, has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children with excellence? Yeah, there's been, you know what, actually just so many people that have been so gracious with me, but I think I would say Phil Aspergren. So he is the director of an organization in Costa Rica called Casa Viva, and he has been very patient with me in my um, <laughs> my growing process, just kind of stepped in um, as a mentor. I didn't really ask for it um, and has really been able to walk me through um, a lot of our organizational growth and my personal growth. Um, just texted me earlier and asked if we can have a call next week. So he has been awesome. I definitely look up to what Casa Viva has done as a kind of a, you know, something to, to model, um, specifically anything, you know, any organization looking at doing foster care, um, you know, in Latin America, at least, um, they are someone to look up to for sure. And Phil specifically is, he's the best. Absolutely. I agree. I agree fully with that. I love Phil. He's, he's one of my favorite people, not just cause he's got a cool name. Right. Um, he's got to stop ducking us, though, man. <laughs> he, we keep you know, asking him to get him on the not, podcast. Yeah. We've had Casa Viva on here. What's yeah. his deal, yeah. man? <laughs> he gave us Arturo. He gave us Arturo, who's who awesome. is great. Who is awesome. Right. But Alicia, um, when you talk to him next week, tell him Brandon done. and Phil want him done. on the podcast. So I'll pair yeah. pressure. Yeah, he's uh, he's a great dude. It's actually funny you say that because I was going to say other than Phil Asperger because that's a <laughs> gimme. Um, who's because you said Casa Viva earlier. So I, I, you know, the amount of people who have been impacted by Phil, it's pretty awesome to see his legacy. I, I love that guy because he doesn't seek the attention as shown by the fact that he's not on this, uh, this long 200 episodes. Yeah. So, but I uh, love that dude. And, uh, so, and I'm so glad that you're connected with him. I know he helped out with La Providencia in Honduras for, for years and, and just even a couple weeks ago, I, or probably a month ago at this point, I, somebody reached out to me and asked some questions about Dominican Republic and he he immediately got back to me with answers and just he's a guy who who loves well and has a ton of knowledge and so I'm so glad that you're connected with him that uh that uh is is the best person if you were to say who's the one person I'd say he's the guy you need to connect with so you already done that so sounds good and um you know love having you on thank you for taking the time to be with us of course thanks Phil thanks Brandon love what you guys are doing in here Well, thanks again, Alicia. That was that was awesome. Um, just continually uh, excited with the people that God is bringing to the the work that that we are a part of, and we get to be part of the team together. You know, and that's that's what I love seeing. And you know, obviously Guatemala, Honduras are neighbors, and I know Mike Doris and Orphan Outreach, and you know Austin down there, who's done done a ton of work over the years, and working with these guys and just seeing how it's continually progressing toward just loving these kids with excellence and, and to be able to fight for that cause with, with governments who, not fight with governments, but work with governments, but fight to make sure that the, the best is what's being sought for these kids and not just good enough. Um, and good enough usually is not even close to what we would consider good enough. So um, what'd you think, man? 
Yeah, no, I, I just love getting to talk with Alicia. Um, the conversations I've had with her in recent months have just been, you know, she's one of those uh, leaders within the orphan care space that is humble and informed. And when she talks about the staff there in Guatemala and the ways that they are leading, the way that they are impacting families and children in their community, um, it, it's it's talking with with people like Alicia that really kind of get me excited, you know, for what God's doing, you know, to 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 really take step forwards in in how Christians care, you know, for orphans and vulnerable children. Um, so I'm just really excited for Story International and for the critical role that Alicia's played in founding that organization and and the, what the team is doing. I mean, um, you know, you could listen to this podcast and. Um, hear, you know, some just fantastic leaders that are leading organizations in this country and that country or, or experts that are, um, you know, advising on stuff in multiple countries. And you could start to kind of think like, oh, wow, this must be like a huge space, you know, we're all. Th- but the truth is, like, we just talked with an excellent leader who's yep. operating in a rural area in Guatemala, and it's an anomaly, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like, mm-hmm. like just because, you know, we, we talk to such excellent leaders on this podcast, the truth is we need more of them. Yeah. And when we talk with somebody like Alicia, I just get excited because I just think, wow, look at what her and her team, you know, have done together through, through collaboration, through development of their programs. Um, so it just, yeah, I, I just get excited, you know, especially when you consider some of the uh, significant gaps in a place like Guatemala or some of the tragic history, even like she shared, um, that in the midst of those challenges, in the midst of darkness, um, there are people that are championing the causes of, of orphans and vulnerable yeah. children and for that to be done with excellence and for that to be family focused. So Absolutely. No, and, and, and you're still young, but uh, as I'm getting older, right. to see that the next generation, I mean, it, it is, it's true. I, I, it's funny because I, I don't feel that old, but I'm, I'm nearly 50, right? So, I mean, which is crazy. When I was, when I was even Alicia's age, when I was 50, seemed really old. Um, and now I'm there and I'm going, but, but to, to think of that and go, we've talked about this being legacy vision. We've talked about this being something that will, it's not going to be solved in our lifetime. And then to see that there are people taking up that, you know, that uh, the cause early on who are thinking deeply, who are thinking not just, I need to get involved and do stuff, do stuff, do stuff tomorrow. No, she gets it that this isn't something that's going to be solved overnight. She gets it that it's, it takes time, it takes energy, it takes effort, it's painstaking. And to, to be constantly in that tension, and I love how she expressed it. It's like, I want to go solve it, I want to go solve it, I want to go solve it, but I also got to know that the value of the one, right? And... And, you know, so that's something that, uh, that I, I truly, truly uh, appreciate because I'm a hopeful realist, right? So I, I see the vision, I see the vision, and I'm grounded in the reality of today, you know. And that value of one is something that I know you have a recommendation for us that's going to that's gonna hit on this or, or go to this, this organization. But it's, it's ever since I started reading, you know, uh, Gary Haugen back in the day, you know, Good News About Injustice and, and uh and uh, Terrify No More was his, was his second book that he wrote, just talking about international justice mission and the work they're doing. And he talked about that over and over, is the value of one. We have to, we have to keep that, in, that tension right in front of us of the value of one and 
we got to make sure that we're moving toward that vision of the of the whole um, and that value of one can provide us with the with the uh, encouragement that can continue us on that journey but we don't stop with that one either right so that's that's that tension that continually comes in so any last thoughts there and then why don't you go ahead and give that recommendation that that we talked about earlier yeah no i think that i think that about wraps it up i mean Again, just uh, I would encourage people even to reach out to Alicia, especially Mm -hmm. like on the foster care front or like what does it look like? Um, Because we do need that developed as 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 an option within some of these systems. Um, So to have a success right where they have multiple kids that are now placed in foster care um, in an area that literally didn't have that as as a child welfare service right um and yet there are kids that need that you know i would just encourage people to look up story international uh reach out to alicia um and and pick her brain and 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 her staff and um especially if you're in latin america but even if you're in other places you know we want to see that so uh just just so appreciate and, and i do have a recommendation as well you know you mentioned gary haugen and um I was just reflecting on kind of the uh, really tragic story that Alicia shared, and that was in the news a few years ago. Um, and one of the things that she mentioned there was that there weren't like any arrests made, right? Um, you have over 40 children and youth, right? These girls that passed away, and it was entirely preventable. And in fact, it was like like the level of culpability for the people that are outside right um is just significant right um but there is a book that i would like to recommend and i don't know maybe i've recommended this before or maybe another guest has but uh if you haven't uh heard of this book i highly recommend it it is called the locust effect and it is by gary haugen and victor boutros um, as you mentioned, Gary Haugen started International Justice Mission, which is just a remarkable organization doing really incredible work in human trafficking. Uh, they came up twice because I actually mentioned Sharon Pate earlier, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, just doing remarkable work. One of the things that they talk about is it's all about justice systems, um, especially in the global south. And there's links to um, colonialism and what systems were set in place that were basically to protect the few from the majority. So then we ask questions of, well, why don't the, you know, systems, uh, you know, hold leaders accountable? Why is there so much corruption? This book gets into all of that. And I, and I actually love the subtitle, Why the End of Poverty Requires the End of Violence. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is very um, eye-opening and uh, also a hard read, you know, just to be honest. Like there's, there's some really sad and challenging stories, but it, for those of us that are working in the global south, um, it helped me a lot when I was living in East Africa for eight years um, to kind of understand. Um, but one of the things that she talked about was how um, this whole thing happened. Um, there was culpability, but leaders, police, government officials, those people that were really responsible to protect these kids have actually gotten away with it with impunity. Um, sadly, that is not a um, that's not uncommon. And uh, in the locust effect, uh, Haugen and Boutros really kind of get into why that takes place. So um, it is a it's a five star book for me. Um, So if you guys haven't read the locust effect, I highly recommend it. And it will help, you know, shed some light, you know, on why in a situation like that, there's nobody held accountable. 
Yeah, there's so much to those books. And so um, we also had Krista Sharp on talking about IJM and some of the stuff. She even touches on some of that in the context of the internet trafficking and stuff like that back in episode something. Uh, <laughs> first hundred. Uh, that's about all. I think it's in the 70s, if I had to guess, 70s or 80s. But anyway, uh, that is something that is, yeah, I mean, it's tragic. It's just, it just truly is. But But fortunately, folks like IJM are working on that and um, doing a great job with it around the world. So uh, with that, folks, uh, we, uh, we have one more thing that's exciting that's coming, coming our way. Uh, I'm going to let uh, Brandon kind of tease it a little bit, and uh, hopefully you guys are excited about this like, uh, like we are. Well, you know, I, I suppose I could take the honor, but only because I'm chatting to you on Zoom as I remember one more very important thing. But, Phil, this is this is your story to tell most of all. But here we are uh, six years down the road uh, of when this yep. podcast started. And we are quickly within a month's time uh, approaching the 200th episode of Think Orphan. So. Uh, Phil, we talk about creating culture. Today we talked about creating foster care where there was no foster care. We've had Andy Crouch on here talk about creating culture. Uh, bro, you have created uh, you have created something that has empowered and encouraged a lot of people. So uh, we have uh, we have a couple uh, more episodes until we get to our 200th episode. How does that? I mean, we'll, we'll get into it on the 200th episode. But I mean, how, what does that? What does that? How does that strike you, bro? That's crazy. I mean, it really is. And I, I will I will say we have created because it's not it could not have if I just talked for 200 episodes, people would have been bored by about episode four. Right. So maybe maybe two. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's it's amazing. I mean, it's just one of those things like anything we do. Right. It's we talked about this even earlier today. Like the problem with anything we ever create is we're involved. Right. The humans right. are involved. And right. And so I think that's the that's the reason why I think it worked from the beginning. It was always an open-handed approach to say, God, you take it where you want to take it. And right. I, I mean, I literally, when I tell the story, it's true. I just said, I'm going to interview a few people who I who are good friends of mine, and, and let's see where it goes, see right. if people listen. And yeah. people listened, and you yeah. were one of those people who listened, and now we're friends, right? right? I mean, that's how cool it is, right? Like, it's just it's just amazing. I I, I mean, I'm so humbled, honored, blessed just lucky whatever word you want to use and throw in there i just i absolutely um have loved being a part of the conversation I, and i say that and it has been i mean even leash is like oh yeah i think i know you from we've met somewhere and we probably right. have right just yeah. because like you know when you do something like this people i mean it's funny i've been literally in columbia and other places around the world people are like where do i know you from and i said i have no idea i don't know you you know and yeah. they go no your voice oh yeah you're the thinker you know and it's just right. it's not about it's not about being known like i i would be fine if no one knew who i was but like just being able to have known for what this has been is awesome yeah right and to be able to to be able to have this is amazing and to be able to have longevity to last two i mean i do enough research on podcasts to know for podcasts to go 200 episodes is rare mm -hmm. and and i am grateful to you and one million home for taking the baton right i mean i'm still a part of it obviously and i always will be as long as you you know want me on and until you kick me out but um <laughs> But to be able to keep it going 
is huge because yeah. that's you know production production and all these other things are a big part of it so right. we'll talk more about it on the 200th but so, um, so i love and, it and and you know one of the cool things and i'll just kind of finish with this and then we'll wrap but you know one of the cool things is we do have lots of listeners and to be honest we don't know everybody, right? right? We're getting downloads and places and in numbers that we don't know everybody. But as we do have the 200th episode, you know, we would just encourage you guys to reach out. Um, we're thinking through some things. If the Think Orphan podcast has impacted your work, if it has impacted uh, how you approach, you know, orphans of vulnerable children and, and, and that draw towards excellence that, that this podcast is really all about, um, we would invite you just to reach out. Um, I would just, uh, we have a producer, he's a great guy, his name's Sam Rich, uh, or uh, editor, sorry, not producer. We don't really have a producer, we kind of just produce it all together, I You're guess. You're the producer, but... Brandon. You're the producer. <laughs> okay. Um, but we would love if you uh, have a story, if there is something that the podcast has done to encourage you, um, could you send in uh, just even a short voice recording? Open up your iPhone and just record and just say, hey, I'm so-and-so from this place, um, and send it over uh, to uh, Samuel. That's S-A-M-U-E-L at onemillionhome.com. Uh, and we would love to just kind of uh, share some of the voices as we come up on the 200th episode in about a month of what uh, of what God's been doing in your life, ways that you've been encouraged by Think Orphan. Um, we want to get a bunch of those uh, together, just kind of a little compilation and, and share about this community that God's been building um, as we all kind of take up the cause for, for fatherless and, and for vulnerable families. So uh, if, if that is you, uh, please reach out to us uh, again. Uh, you could go hello at one million home that's the number one million home.com or samuel at one million home.com we would love to hear from you and uh, even plug you in to the 200th episode coming up in about a month that's your chance folks if you wanted to be a part of that was your lifelong dream well i i hope that you aim higher but if it were uh then that's your chance to get on and uh you know i i really i can't wait to hear some of those uh voice recordings some of those different things from different people and whether it's emails whether it's whatever we can even read them if you don't want your voice on there and my wife doesn't like hearing the sound of her voice um even though i love it um you know sometimes people don't want that so just write it and just send it to yes, us email and we'll is good it. too we'll read them on there too and right and uh i just love that god's been able to use this this and i i would love to be able to share how he's used it so please do that and as always folks you know we just hope that you're taking what you're learning from this show and you are using it to help you understand how you can love orphan and vulnerable children better and better each and every day thanks a lot have a great couple weeks we hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.